Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Janae Sharp. You can hear her giggling in the background. Uh, Janae is a physician suicide loss survivor and the founder and CEO of the Sharp Index, a nonprofit dedicated to better physician mental health. Her main work involves healthcare data and analytics marketing to improve healthcare outcomes for the underserved. Janae has three, uh-oh, updated four children. Four children. Yep, I got a now with four. Now with four. Uh, she <laughs> enjoys hiking, triathlons, and quilting. Uh, no days off for this one over here. Uh, <laughs> Janae, thank you for joining the podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Okay. I'm nervous. You're, you know, and as you should be, you know, I've, I've oh, heard, good. I've heard the, like the mortality rate of doing uh podcast is like above 50%. So we're, we're um, in trouble. a lot of people are doing it. It's like, <laughs> it's the new become a health coach. It is. Everybody's an expert <laughs> on this thing. Right. Uh, it's so funny because my friend, his kid is like eight years old and she has a podcast and, and it, and her, she's doing better numbers than me. I'm a little jealous. Yeah, my son's like, you do stuff online, but you're not that good. <laughs> and he has his first like sponsored stream today. And I was like, oh, okay. So every time there's an article about some kid making a million dollars online, I'm like, well, guys. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, this is also why I think people aren't going to college as much as they used to. I mean, if you can be eight years old and make, you know, sponsorship money why go to college you know yes you're, you're 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 already getting that real world experience you're signing contracts you're paying for the mortgage right you're taking your your parents on vacations yeah college what that's not happening to my kids my kids seem like very like well adjusted well that's and less worldly than our generation they're like i don't really need stuff and i'm like well there goes my dreams of you being a youtube star but yeah. now let me they, ask you they this, had right? one job <laughs> right that, that that was so that you didn't have to work right yeah i was Where like you, you don't located? even want a lawnmower business they don't want anything they're like we're just happy where are you located um, in the world right now i live in charlotte north carolina and we moved here from utah not too long ago and i'm from the pacific northwest where are you at i'm in san diego Ooh, do you I love know. it? Um, I don't know if love it is the word. I, I don't really love anywhere, but I like it because the, the, the weather is pretty much the same year round. It's pretty moderate and is everything nice. is about 15 minutes away. So it has its perks, but I do miss thunderstorms that I'm used to from Chicago. Okay. We get thunderstorms here. I love it. I mean, I just sleep so much better at night. I need I need a little ruckus. I need noise that makes me feel safe. If it's too quiet, I feel like uh, it's going to be like a prison riot or something. <laughs> I need drizzling overcast weather from the Pacific Northwest. That, that that's very Pacific Northwest of you to say that. Yeah. So I mean, I want to I want to hop in because. Uh, we have limited time here. We have to, we have a sharp out at three. Um, when you say 
you know, in your bio, we talked about being a physician suicide loss survivor. Uh, tell me more about that. So that's a great, that's a great way to put it. Um, so my, I got married when I was 23 and I met him on like a mission for my church, um, John Madsen, and he died by suicide before finishing his um, residency in pathology. He'd already done like gone to Drexel and gotten a master's of public health and epidemiology. We had three children. Um, yeah. So a lot of people talk about suicide loss. It's a specific it's, it's different than a lot of other types of um, death or loss. And there's a lot of stigma associated with dying by suicide, especially in the medical community. So I talk about it because I found at the very beginning, a lot of people needed to talk about it. Every time I would meet someone who was a physician or even worked in healthcare, they had known someone that died by suicide, whether that was one of their co-residents, someone in medical school, one of their co-workers. Death by suicide um, is more common. I think it's twice the rate of the normal population among physicians. So I, first of all, I had to get skills learning how to talk about it. And second of all, just dealing with all that grief that people had and had carried around so long was so hard for me. And second of all, I just decided I needed to be able to talk about it. And I needed also to challenge the medical industrial complex and medicine in general to really take mental health more seriously and to believe in itself. Like if you think mental illness is a thing, then this is something that we can do something about. And so, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for sharing that part of your journey and your story. And then secondly, what have you found has been uh, the reason or some uh, contributors to why physicians' rate is two times the, the general society rate? That's a great question. And every time someone dies by suicide, it's complex. So there's never going to be any one reason. And there's never going to be, and for the most part, like a very conclusive amount of closure. In medicine, some of it will be like access to knowledge. Some of it is stress. And some of it is shame and the ability to talk about that. And that's generally, it's generally accepted too, that like if people never sleep, they don't do super hot and healthcare in general and medicine was built in an unhealthy work environment, in an unhealthy structure. So if you take people who naturally are great at academics, are great at school, and put them in an environment where they never sleep and they aren't supported. It's a recipe. And then teach them all about bodies. It's a recipe for disaster. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think when you look at comedians, physicians, uh, you know, doctors, uh, people in the military, anybody who has a, a career, uh, even like truck drivers, where they have an abnormal sleep cycle, where either they can't get enough sleep or their sleep cycles are constantly being uh, changed or manipulated, then we see higher stress levels, higher addiction rates, and then also right. higher suicide rates. Yeah. It's like when you have a kid, since I have a million, I know this, like you just don't sleep for a while. And after like four months of not sleeping, you get kind of weird. But imagine if that was your job and it just never got better. And I'm not saying that that always happens in medicine, but I do think that that's a contributing factor to higher rates. So when you're talking to these mental health facilities about improving the mental health of uh, physicians, doctors, people in the medical field, w- I mean, what can they do about the sleep portion? It seems like, I mean, a hospital in my head is 24-7. People get shot at 2 a.m. and yeah. 2 p.m., right? They really don't schedule it very well, although I hear more babies are born on the full moon. Um, there are different ways to to address issues like that. Some of them include actually following workforce safety laws about residency hour limits. Um, You're limited to 80 hours of work during residency, but they don't really look at your work in other facilities and they don't actually track your hours. So it's like self-reporting. And usually the unspoken rule is that you don't report. If you went over, you just kind of don't report or you have to fill out a bunch of paperwork. You can get in trouble. You could lose your residency spot. So I think part of it is you have to actually want people to have a healthy schedule. So step one, actually want it. Because we could talk about, you know, you're right. Like people don't wait. People don't like schedule their like trauma or their car accident. But if your healthcare system doesn't want that change, it won't matter. And then if they do want the change, a lot of this is going to be hiring. It's going to be setting up rules so that people can only work so many 24-hour shifts in a row or so that people have a protected time. It's going to be taking the American Disabilities Act seriously. And maybe you might have to hire an extra person. You might have to look at different shifts. But in the end, a lot of it is not going to change until people want it to. And then you just figure out a schedule. That makes sense, because I would imagine that the medical field, especially when talking about physicians, attracts type A personalities. These are people who are typically more aggressive uh, than assertive and, you know, have that like by any means necessary type of mentality and, you know, push yourself faster, harder, stronger. And, you know, let's get it done. Um, Push through, you know, rest is for the week kind of mentality. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't say they're always more aggressive, but I would say that a lot of them see medicine as part of almost a spiritual calling to help people heal. And they also are people who are excellent at tests, 
they do well, you know, they're, they're good at checking all the boxes, but what happens when the boxes become so numerous that you break and you don't want to admit that you're the one who broke, not that it was completely unreasonable. Yeah. um, Thank you for correcting that whole uh, aggressive a statement that I made because I would also imagine on the flip side, it attracts people who kind of have a people pleasing type of uh, a behavior trait where, you know, they want to please the superiors. They want to please their peers and, and they, they want to do the best for their clients at the sacrifice of themselves. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are jerks in medicine too. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I think there's, across the board, a lot of people who went into medicine, they knew they could have make made more money somewhere else. So they chose to go into healthcare for a reason. And many of those reasons are altruistic. So yeah. when you find out that you can't pack it, it's really hard. I also think as a rule, people who have excelled in under a lot of stress aren't very good at identifying their limits. I'll give you an example. We have been able to speak with a lot of people in healthcare and some we we talk to them about their burnout levels and then about their depression levels, like your coping skills. And a lot of the time they kind of track together. Like if you're burned out, you're you're PQH9, you're like your mental health tracks with it. However, there are groups that like, it doesn't. And I'll tell you who they are. Psychiatrists. They're people who have gone to therapy. They're people who have lost someone because they have the mental health tools to support their own mental health. So mental health in general, and and I don't know if you found this with other people, it's a learned skill. Being able to understand like life and death and mental health, especially it's not something that we automatically came with. And usually we come from a background that's pretty toxic about mental health, um, across the board if we're living in America. Um, so I think physicians are the same, like they haven't always been taught to be conscientious about that because none of us are. I like that idea that mental health is a learned skill because I think uh, a lot of us, uh, just assume that, you know, you just got to suck it up or pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and keep going. But there are literal tools and skills that we can incorporate to, you know, reduce our burnout, reduce our stress and to cope with the demands of, you know, our our work and our relationships. Yeah. I mean, I hope it's learned, right? Well, definitely. You know, what's cool is there's a new Netflix documentary with Jonah Hill where he interviews his therapist Stutz and he talks about the tools of mental health for depression for anxiety for just life in general and I think uh it's becoming more and more popular for you know celebrities to talk about their mental health struggle and then also the tools that they're using to overcome or cope with I'd rather say cope with it and I think more people are going to get used to referring to them as tools or skills um versus you know therapy i think that some people like you said there's a stigma around going to therapy and and 
And so, you know, with physicians, why not go get help? You said there's a stigma. Like, what would the stigma be for them saying, hey, you know, I want to talk to a therapist or, you know, I, I need, you know, a, a day off or something? That's a great question. Um, people still don't believe in mental health. There's a lot of the culture of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and working hard, especially in medicine, which was, you know, the whole structure is based on people who are using cocaine of their scheduling and learning. So they don't want to talk about it. Wait, say also, more th- about that. Say more about the cocaine oh, part. No, you no, know about this? no, no, please. I'm sure you do. Right. Do you know? Like, so the medical industrial complex was like built on this this season, this idea of residency and, and learning about medicine. And they formalized how medical schools were put together. And the founder of that, I forget his name. Uh, I think it was William Stuart Halstead. He founded residency. They all, they used, they used, oh yeah. When they started with, with medical, medical education, like they use a lot of cocaine, especially during surgeries. Like if, if you're in surgery all day and you want to stay present, they would u- use drugs. I don't think they saw it the same way we did. Wow. William Stewart Halstead developed a novel residency training program at John Hopkins Hospital that with some modifications became the model for surgical and medical residency training in North America. While performing anesthesia research early in his career, Halstead became addicted to cocaine and morphine. Wow. Yeah. You know, I feel like you hear a lot of stories about that, too. Like they were going around with like uranium and all their um, dishes. They didn't really understand everything, but they were learning. That's Um, a steep learning curve right there. That's tough. Yeah, so you want to compare compare with someone who historically was using cocaine? Okay, well, I mean, that could go pretty bad for you. Um, well, I mean, I'm sure and, now they're drinking like Red Bulls and five hour. Yeah, energies. I don't think I don't think they're all using cocaine. Okay, I hope. And if they are, you know, that's a different podcast. But I think they expect themselves to be able to keep up with that model and you have to learn so much about the body and you don't have enough time and we're talking about life and death decisions you want to be able to actually practice medicine so your basic set point is on a workforce built in performance enhancing drugs second People don't actually believe in mental health. Even now, when we talk about it with people, sometimes people are just like giving you lip service and being like, I don't know about that. And um, that's an interesting phenomenon. No one wants to be the broken one. In many states as well, and this is something that is actually changing in real time this year, they have questions on your credentialing or licensing exam that relate to mental health. For example, in, in certain States, like when you're getting your medical license, they would ask, do you have a history of mental illness? You would have to give your entire history, including if you had had postpartum depression, if you had ever taken any drugs, 
Now, I don't know about you, but if someone says you're, we need to know your mental health history and also your entire job is dependent on this. And if you fail it, you can't be a doctor. I might lie. I mean, I'll just say it. (laughs) I'm definitely going to lie. Yeah. I'm definitely going to lie. Like if they're like, yeah, you have to meet these requirements. Sorry about the 10 million billion years you've been in school, but like, we just need to know everything. Why should you have to tell your employer that? You shouldn't. So there's that. There's the fact that they actually, it's probably a violation of law, you know, but, but people, laws changed by people saying they have to change. Right. Um, and I honestly think most people have had someone that's watched, that's listened to a podcast about, you know, just bucking up and I was depressed, but then I just decided to get out of bed. And I've, I've had friends that have said that they're like, you know, and then I worked out and I felt so much better. Or you've seen like the Paris Hilton short. That's like, just stop being poor. Like if everyone could just like stop being sad and being poor, that'd be great. And I think mental health is similar. Like I think people must have some weak ass depression. First of all, if they can just roll over and get up and get over it. And second of all, like, that culture is also present in medicine, just like it's present everywhere. And if anything, it's amplified. So they think you should just get over it. Like stop complaining and take responsibility. Yeah. And I would imagine in a medical field, especially if you're in a residency part, you're comparing yourself to other people and you say to yourself, well, they seem to be doing okay they seem to be handling it so i should be able to handle it so you have that i know we always use social media as a compare and despair but within your own tight circles you have that it's it's even i feel like it's even more intense especially if there's somebody who doesn't look as healthy or as fit or you know has more challenges than you and you're like well they can do it i can do it yeah why can't you do it i i had a friend once who was a dance teacher and she's like like nobody wants the fat dance teacher. And I I don't always want to say that because every time someone's like, what about medicine? I'm like, well, because nobody wants the fat dance teacher, I guess. Like nobody wants the fat dance teacher. Nobody wants to be the fat dance teacher. Nobody wants to be the one that can't hack it. And you're right. Like they're looking around. They're like, oh, they can do it. Why can't I do it? Or they're intensely competitive with those other people because they are being competitive both for job spots and academically they've been taught to be competitive. Um, Nobody wants to be the one that fails. Of all the Uh, people that you, I'm sorry, were you about to say something else? No, no, I wasn't. Go ahead. Um, You know, of of all the people that you've talked to, have you talked to anybody at any physicians or anybody in the medical field who, has sought treatment, got help, and, you know, their career, their life was better for it? Yes, absolutely. I've I've spoken to a lot of people. Also, we gave out, oh, sorry, that sounded weird. Also, the Sharp Index gives out awards every year, and one of the categories is advocacy. Our first winner for that category was Justin Bullock, and he has been public about his journey and him having bipolar disorder. 
um, and sharing it and going through the process of them questioning his, his license and training. And he talked a lot about it. And he's also spoken about, you know, that that getting help is important and that it works. And I kind of appreciated a few things from him. And one was that he put a lot of trust into the system that he could get help and that he could get the support he needed. And the second thing is that even if you do, it's still rough. It's still hard. Um, So there are examples. There are a few examples of people who have publicly spoken about that. Even the former acting surgeon general of California um, is Devika. I don't know how to say her last name. Uh, She just, she just spoke about it um, and how important it was to her to have a normal schedule and to protect her, her own mental health and how, when, she found balance for her own life. She's able to be a better physician and to practice medicine. So those are just two of the people who are involved in medicine who have been very public. I also, every time I talk about this, I will say there are a lot of physicians who have talked to me about this who are not public about their journey. And I have a great deal of respect for people who do not decide to disclose. Um, I think, like I said with Justin, he carried a lot of weight, or Dr. Bullock, um, he carried a lot of weight and people did um, literally question his medical license. So I think it's important to realize, we tell people a lot of the times, it's easy to say, hey, let's talk about your story. It's much harder when you're actually doing it. And it's much harder. Um, we're an advocacy group, but it's hard when when we're trying to talk to people and say, you know, there will be costs here. Um, and I I have like a deep respect of people who who share. Yeah, when you talk about the different ways that they have found to cope in terms of mental health coping skills strategies help that they've sought what are some of those things what i I heard you mention earlier about you know trying to balance your life out and and focusing on your sleep like what are some of the practical things that you've heard other physicians mention and then what are the some of the things that maybe you yourself would recommend for physicians these are great questions they're tricky you know what you just fix your entire life you'll be fine Um, you can use humor. Um, that's actually one thing that that people have said it's really effective to to be able to joke and to find things that make you feel alive. Veterans Health Affairs has one of the best sleep tracking apps available in the App Store, which is surprising, right? A doctor recommended that to me, a psychiatrist. They're like, this is the one we like. No one knows it exists. Um, what is it called? Like if you just look up Veterans Affairs sleep tracking app, it'll come up. And I'm not going to search it. Okay. So, yeah, because I'm huge. I track my sleep every night. And one of the cool things it showed me that I have to stop eating by six. 
in order mm-hmm. to have uninterrupted sleep through the night. If I eat past six, it it typically causes some insulin spike or my food doesn't digest completely. And so I'm not getting into the deep rim. But when I, if I'm done eating by six, then my, my sleep is like beautiful. And not it's called, 100%. It's, it's called it's called insomnia coach. Insomnia coach. All right, yes. I'll link to that in the show notes. So yeah. you said but they sleep. also have okay. other they also have other things. Um, you know, they actually have a whole health app and their whole health program designed to help veterans is being used now to help physicians and clinicians within their system. I also think there are a few things people people want to use. There are a lot of different programs. Some of it is just good old fashioned therapy. Learn how to talk about your feelings, learn how to cope, um, you know, making space for that. Other things that matter are finding someone that you connect with, like peer to peer support, finding other physicians and clinicians who have been through something similar. When people talk about death by suicide or or mental health issues, often the differentiating factor between whether or not you thrive afterwards or, or continuously have struggle is your support system. So the people around you, whether or not you have friends, those things are important. Even if you're, you know, buried in work or having a difficult time, one of the strongest things that you can do is have friends. Um, yeah. So take care of your personal habits. Maybe, you know, start a nonprofit advocacy. Just kidding. That's not actually on the list. Um, <laughs> but building a strong support network is there. I never tell people that reaching out for help is the way to cure things. Um, I do think it's good to be responsible, but I also think, um, I don't think everybody has the help even when they reach out. So I'm always hesitant to say that. Um, but those are some, some ideas like there are habit trackers, um, having a peer to peer community and, and building your network. There's so many though, you know? Yeah. I would also imagine being a physician. I I used to date a emergency room nurse and she mm-hmm. barely had time to eat a decent meal. Right? Like she was always snacking on trail mix and like she would have to like keep little snacks stashed so she right. could like grab on a go. Are Which there I believe new... in snacks. I have a testimony uh, of snacks. <laughs> a <laughs> like testimony of snacks. <laughs> yeah. Also, there is something I left out that is specific to physicians. Then we can go back to snacks and eating. Um we found that a lot of people, when they reach out directly, like for like trauma support or for learning tools to let things go, any of those things, if it's for them, if it's for the individual, they don't do that well. They don't want to do it and they're not very engaged. However, if we did the same tools, the same skills and said, will you help mentor someone? Or will you be a support group? People in medicine were more likely to be engaged. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is I think it lowers the stigma. So they're able to like get support and and access tools. And two is like, they're somewhat altruistic. 
Like the idea that you're helping other people who might be going through the same thing makes you feel good. So yeah, make it okay. Maybe if you have trouble to say, look, I'll be part of this group as a mentor. That's an easier lift. Wow. I really love that. That's such a great idea. I've not, I mean, I obviously have heard of mentors and the, the powerful effect and impact they can have on, especially in sobriety, when they talk about, you know, finding a sponsor, that kind of thing. Yeah. But in terms of a gateway into people seeking mental health treatment and also sticking with it, uh, that, that's a beautiful concept. Yeah. It was shocking to me because they'd gone through just as much trauma. But if we were like, can you help these people? Everyone's like, A-okay, yes, 100%. You know, and they were not doing great themselves. Well, yeah, you know, always, not always, but sometimes I'll share the story of like when I played college football and at the end of practice, we have to run these. Sprints. You mean sometimes every day you get a sometimes chance? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, uh, like, uh, Al literally Bundy every from, day, uh, married with children. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back in high school yeah. when I scored the fifth touchdown. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's but good. I, it's good. I remember at the end of practice, we'd have to run these wind sprints. And mm-hmm. I, and then of course we hated it. We just, I don't like sprints. Now we got to Well, we I kind of do like sprints actually. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, sprint. What? You mean as a, uh, compared to like not a as, not race? as like, a, not as like a high school. Yeah. Not as a high school football athlete, which I never was, but I'm trying to relate. Yeah. I got you. <laughs> so at the end of it, there would always be like, I would get done and then there would be some guys who were still running it. And I found that no matter how exhausted I was, if I went out there to help them by pushing them in the back to kind of nudge them along, I, for some reason, had my, my, I was able to recover faster by helping them than, to, than just by standing on the sidelines. And, I love and, that. and so as you know, we're talking about mentoring other people or, you know, facilitating a group. In, in terms of that helping us to, one, get into therapy, stick with therapy, but also to help us with, I'm, I'm assuming, with a grieving process. If we've lost someone to suicide, um, that can help us navigate the emotional waters of that. Yes. I hadn't thought of that either. Like, we we do it, but I remember at first, I kind of found it overwhelming. <laughs> Say more about that. Well, it's just like all these people telling me their stories. And I think maybe I have like listening eyes. Like it was just a lot. It was a lot. Like I, I don't know. I was glad that I had counseling and that I had support because there's a lot of weight out there and there are a lot of people who are hurting and making space for that is, it's a practice. Um, yeah, at first, maybe it was because I was kind of in acute grief, but I found it completely overwhelming at first. No, that makes sense because, you know, for a lot of people, and I'm sure there's some doctors who are introverts. And if you're more introverted, just being around people can be for any extended period of time can be exhausting. They call it the social hangover. And so I don't have that. I get, I gain, (laughs) I my kids are like, you need to go somewhere. Cause I, t- I tell them that I'm like, I need to go so I can gain power. I'm an extrovert. Yeah. But, no. but not necessarily about feelings, not about this type of heavy stuff, you know, mm. 
Right. Like, like, yeah, I need people. During the pandemic, I was like, I just need people. Um, yeah, you're a hugger. I could tell. Yeah. Like, I just need people. You need that oxytocin. Go out in public so you can gain power. Um, my kids aren't like that. None Weird. of them? All four? No. I mean, they, they kind of are. Well, the youngest might be an extrovert. Also, when you're comparing, like, it's kind of. Got it. I just so, like being around people. So then when when your husband passed away, is that, did you, like, invite a bunch of people over? Or, like, what were, like, two or three things that really helped you? All right, so I have two questions. One was, like, what are two or three things that I, helped you through the grieving process? I think I hid in my closet. And <laughs> yeah, hid in your closet, right? And then, two, yeah. and then the other have, question is, what step food? One, get a what closet was your favorite big food that, that you that can hide? I don't remember the two weeks after he died. I barely remember them. Like, I think I was mostly in my closet. Um, so I tell people, get someone who has their shit together and have them manage it. I also got over 500 messages the day he died. And that was pretty overwhelming. So someone else took over my phone. And it literally was my advice to people is have someone else take over. The other advice that I got that was pretty good was that the second year is harder because everyone has forgotten about it and you haven't. Um, Food. I don't remember, but you know what? We didn't have funeral potatoes at his funeral. And I don't know if that's a thing where you're from, but where I'm from, you get these like potatoes that have like creamy stuff on them and cheese and, I was like, we didn't even get that. What? What? Like, how did this happen? Um, I've never heard of that. Well. Creamy potatoes? What is that? Is that a Funeral. Thing? Have you never heard of funeral potatoes? Funeral potatoes? I am going to send you Are you making this up? Is this up there with the cocaine? Is, like, is that the Google The cocaine everything? story. I feel you know like what? I need to go Google everything you're saying. The now. cocaine story is true. And the funeral potato story is true. We didn't even have those. I don't know what I ate because I don't remember anything except I remember telling my kids it was horrible. Um, I didn't feed myself. Someone else did. I didn't care. Um, I mean, as we came out of it, there were, you know, certain things. I remember my daughter stopped eating food that she liked because she was sad that she couldn't share it with her dad anymore um my advice to people is usually to get someone there who will keep the ship afloat i love that but and and so how have you is there like a, a thing or two that you've said to your kids in terms of making sure that they're opening up to you or feel like they have a space to open up to if they're going through any type of emotional challenges or. Yeah, we do check-ins. We've um, gone to what, like therapy. What does a check-in look like? What does that look like? I tell them they have to come down and, and be human. <laughs> I was like, we're going to do this whole thing. We're going to do it. Li- I literally say it. I'm like, we're going to do this parent thing. I'm going to do my parent shtick, you know? 
where I'm like, how are you doing? Let's talk about your feelings. And they're like, you're so weird. (laughs) Or they tell me I'm sus. That's another popular one. Um, And, you know, I say, I want to know how you're feeling. And they say, fine. Just like normal stuff. And sometimes they don't say fine. But yeah, I like to invite them and tell them this is the formal parenting portion of their day where they have to participate. And if they want to take the role of sullen teenager, they are welcome to do so. Um, yeah. And, and we talk so about things. When a kid says, I'm not fine, what, what do you, how, how do you respond to that? Or how does the group respond to that? And, and I'm asking because how emotions are handled in a household I truly believe determine how they will handle and address them outside, you know, you know, at work, at school and things like that. And if they feel like they're being ridiculed or judged or shut down or diminished at home, it can happen somewhere else. So when a kid says I'm not fine, where does it, where does the conversation go from there? We usually talk about it. It's just saying, all right, what's going on? Like, how does that make you feel? I learned this skill in one of our groups that was like for suicide loss survivors where children need you to reflect back what you're saying, which by the way, works with all humans. And basically the practice there was you would say, it sounds like you're not feeling fine. And that's pretty much the entire practice. Like tell your kid that I, I, I do have a story there though. Um, without like going into too much detail, like sometimes when they're fine, it isn't like this formal sit down. It's like an outburst. So my son's been struggling with mental health and he, he, um, one morning when I was telling him to take out the trash, he was screaming at me about, you know, how he's been depressed and how he's never gotten any help and how he, he was like, is it normal? Like what kind of kid at nine has a suicide note? And, um, that was, first of all, that was a really tough, tough day. And, um, I was like, well, I think a lot of kids, to be honest, like statistically, a lot of the kids who have been through what you've been through losing your dad probably have that. And if they don't, they at least have a lot of questions. Um, and that's been a journey of the last few months where it's been basically like, first of all, all those people that we've gone and talked to about feelings, that was actually therapy. Um, but also my initial response was just like a lot of kids, like, I don't know what kid would lose their dad and not be really curious about how, or not be really sad. And plus you're 13 years old. So it's pretty normal for your body, your brain and all your brain chemistry to be pretty wonky and it's going to be doing things that don't make any sense to you. Um, and I just told them it's normal because when you've lost someone, you better be having a rough time or there's something bigger wrong. Um, so that's a lot of what we do and talking about you are not your feelings, but your feelings matter. Like there's a difference between feelings and choices and yeah. Um, But his feelings don't come out like a calm, like calm. It's like 
he is screaming at you and crying for no reason. And that's a lot because I didn't grow up with brothers. But, um, but yeah, that was a story of something that happened to us. And I think as a parent, at first you think how sad it is. And also grateful that my kids opened up and told me. Um, because if you don't share your feelings, they don't go anywhere. You know, this isn't something that disappears with ignoring it. But it was really hard, especially to feel like I don't want to lose someone like I already did. So I had the opportunity to reach out and make sure that I could be present for my kids. And I haven't told anyone else that story. <laughs> Just it's normal, right? I think it's normal. It's absolutely. Like, absolutely. I mean, for him to feel pain, for him to be grieving, and, and also it's normal for him to feel like he's the only one, right? Like he's the only yeah. one going through it. You know, a lot of teenagers have that, I'm the only one, no one will understand um, kind of mentality. And, and I think that's the power of, you talk about doing podcasts. I mean, that's the beauty of podcasts and also, you know, books and, you know, so many, you know, I really um, yes. so excited that there are more people talking about their experiences and what they're going through and not just giving you like 12 steps. Here are the 12 ways to blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, no, here's my story. Here's my I made a, I made a sarcastic 12 steps. I think you're right because when John died too, like I found resources online because I wasn't totally in a place where I could talk about it, but other people had shared their stories. Was there anything in John's background that may have also contributed family history, drugs? That is a great anything? question. Um, yeah. Um, I don't think, I think some people think suicide was a surprise. I also think like some, some of the people around him supported him a lot and that, and the people were not surprised. Um, so yeah, there was, I don't know everything, but I will say that that wasn't just an instance of like a system oppressing someone. There's usually some sort of combination. That's also interesting because, um, we don't talk about that a lot, you know, both because like I have kids and they listen to my stuff and because some because of that strong interplay in medicine between like improving a system versus like strengthening the individual. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the time you have someone who probably had a pre-existing condition or pre-existing mental illness, you put them under a lot of stress and um, ugly things come out. I don't know is if that any, helps. Is there anything? Absolutely. It, it helps. And, you know, I think because it, stress is so downplayed and, you know, there's this yeah. old adage of like, you know, pressure makes diamonds, but nobody, <laughs> nobody talks about the fact that it takes billions of years for yeah. pressure to make diamonds. Like it doesn't happen overnight or in a lifetime. It happens right. over the span of, of light years. 
Um, is there right. anything? Is there anything from your your journey or your story or a- anything that you think that would help any physician listening in right now? The culture of medicine is is changing some, and to people that are physicians listening, and I would say it's normal, and every physician I've spoken to has someone they've lost. And that community is something I don't think they all realize is there. And there are people that are working on this. And every person can make a difference. I don't think we can, we can't save everyone and we can't do everything, but every single one of us has the ability to improve this. Is that inspirational? I don't know. I love that. And then last question that I ask of all my guests, because always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Janae? Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, does everyone say don't? Uh, no, you know, they say, you know, one more day or... Uh, I mean, people do say don't, there's don't, there's one more day. There's no, somebody loves you. I tried uh, to say something, something funny. I was going to be like that. Um, this week, someone was like, show up imperfect. Ooh, and I thought I that like was really that. good. Like, I love that. Like, let yourself be where you are and show up imperfect. Like, let yourself be broken. And do the next best thing. Oh, I, I, that sounds like the title of a book. That is, a, I don't know if you're working on one. I mean, you got four. I'm not. You can, you can put them to work on it. You know, I have one be the editor, one to proof. I don't have that brand. I don't have that brand of kids. They're just like happy. They don't even, they don't even give me like an extensive list of stuff they want. That all comes from inside. janae sharp thank you so much for joining us thank you listeners for tuning in remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUI uh-oh they changed the number guys now it's 988 it's the new 988 if you're international if you're in the philippines canada budapest if you're in chile uh there are international phone numbers for you to call chat text If, if you're in a hospital There are phone numbers for you to call, chat, and text. And if you need financial assistance, there are also resources for those in each and every single one of those show notes. Uh, You can always reach out to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you, Janae. Thank you.